0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see each of you uh, this morning. We give thanks that the Bible tells us so. You know, um, uh, that, that song that we just sang, the chorus that we, we just sang, is um, generally regarded by many as a children's song. The, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. Um, Jesus said that we must become like children. Uh, that the kingdom is for such as children, uh, that we should seek, desire, and pray for a childlike faith, that our, um, our pursuit of um, the Lord should be with the, um, the trust and the commitment of a child. And um, I, I don't know, but it seemed that we sang that chorus Uh, Louder, with greater strength and um, fervor because there's something about uh, whether we learned it as a child or much later as adults, um, that simple faith that Jesus loves us, that He loves me individually, and that we can have confidence and stand in that assurance because He has said so. The Bible says so, and the Bible is God's Word. It's breathed out by Him, and it is profitable for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And you will have neither if you do not know the love of Jesus. We give Him thanks that we do know His love and that we stand in that love today. Let's pray and commit this message and our response to it to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, to stand in confidence and in assurance. Lord, we thank you that however far we have wandered, you have not left us lost. We thank you that however um, uh, deep we have um, fallen, um, you have brought us up. We thank you that, we who were far away, you have, you have brought us near and you have done so by drawing near in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you that uh, the right hand of the heavenly throne is not empty, but is occupied with one who intercedes for us. And so we pray, Lord, that as we, we gather now, that um, uh, the prayers of our Lord and Savior Jesus are heard on our behalf. Forgive us of our sins. Keep us in righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And we pray that you would guide us now through your word by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Locate in your Bibles the New Testament letter of Paul to Titus and the first chapter, Titus chapter 1, beginning with This morning, verse 5. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to continue our series this morning on unfinished business, pursuing gospel identity on a godless island. Our island is a a godless island. Whatever gods it professes to believe, these are gods that lie. Whether those are the, the gods of idolatry, Or uh, the gods of philosophy, uh, whether that God might have a name and a form put to it, or that God might have instead some, some ism attached to it, individualism, consumerism, or materialism perhaps. We are in a context that is in rebellion against the Lord, that has rejected Him and His Word. And yet, our position, our posture, should not, must not, cannot be one of helplessness or hopelessness, but rather a determined and enthusiastic pursuit of Christ and His likeness in our lives individually and in our life as a local church. And so it is with great joy that we dive into this series of messages on Titus and seek to learn about the pursuit of gospel identity. Yes, even in our own godless island. Let's read from verse 5. This is why I left you on Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And His his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that He may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May the Lord bless the reading and now explanation of His Word. A stay-behind operation is a military tactic whereby secret operatives or organizations are intentionally left behind in a territory that is overrun by the enemy. Think about it, if our own nation in the, back in the 1930s and 40s had been uh, overrun by the uh, Nazi empire, assume for a moment that the Third Reich had been successful in their attempt to invade this island. And uh, in that scenario, the government, the British government, would have withdrawn quite potentially. Of course, they would have fought in the, on the beaches and on the landing grounds and in the streets and all of that, but at some point, the leadership, the government, would have withdrawn to a safe place and would have, as there are countries in the world today have these, they would have operated as a government in exile. I was at an event in London last year where uh, the Chechen government in exile was represented. These are people that have been chosen as representatives of a nation that has been, uh, or a people that has been conquered by a colonial or imperial force and have to operate their unique and distinct uh, identity as a nation and as a government from another place. In a say behind operation, operatives are nonetheless left in the land that is overrun. So, again, the example of the British government, had they, in this alternative scenario, withdrawn, they would have left strategically placed, well-informed, capable individuals for a specific purpose. To work for their nation and its government from behind enemy lines. Not least in forming, and training, and in building a resistance movement so that the overrun territory or even nation could eventually be reclaimed and the rightful government once more be recognized. Titus was, in spiritual terms, a say-behind operative. We have it there in verse 5, I left you in Crete. He was left on Crete a substantially urbanized, strategically located Mediterranean island with people who were self-described as always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Churches had been planted, and Titus was involved in that along with the Apostle Paul. But Paul left, and anyone that was alongside them in their team Went with him, it would seem, because the letter is only addressed to Titus. Titus stayed. And he had a mission. His mission was effectively to set things in order. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Effectively... Setting things in order, we might say, for a healthy resistance movement against the sinful world system, the flesh, and the devil. To encourage and equip followers of Christ for unique and distinct life in the hostile environment that was Crete. The good news of Christ that they had trusted, which had saved them, would and indeed should, it must, produce The goodness of Christ's likeness, which in turn would further point to the good news of Christ. Gospel identity, knowing who and embracing what they are in Christ, should bring good order. And I would say the same to you this morning. Knowing who you are and what you have in Jesus should bring good order in your life. It should realign your priorities. It should reset your, um, your behaviors. And uh, it, it should bring your life into conformity, not with the world around you, but with Jesus Christ. Paul writes elsewhere, do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so... He's writing to Titus to encourage such things in the Cretan context. But leadership is needed. If they are to pursue healthy gospel identity, if they are to see flowing out of that gospel identity good order, and if they are to see that good order further producing a clear, distinct gospel identity, they need leadership. This is new to them. They're first generation followers of Jesus Christ that haven't known Him for very long. Sometimes we can be insensitive and uh, take way too much for granted about what people should know about the implications of following Jesus. In the work of discipleship then, many times people have assumed that it is enough for people to come to a service Sometimes that person thinks that it's enough for them to come to one service a week, drift in, drift out, and that be it. But the life of disciples is a life of discipleship and that can require uncomfortable conversations. But I dare say the the discomfort is often more on those who are put out by having to tell people stuff that they think they should know. But that's not always fair. Sometimes it is, but not always. For there are many people who have never had someone sit with them and talk about the real practicalities of their life as followers of Jesus. And that's something that Paul will get more into as we approach uh, chapter 2. But he's instructing Titus to provide the necessary leadership to cultivate that kind of Christian community. Titus is left behind to see that leadership is found and leaders are appointed. He is not left behind to be the leader. He is left behind to find the leaders. It will not be sustainable if this one man tackles the whole island. His task is one of training. It is one of equipping. It is one of identifying and equipping suitably capable spiritually called individuals for this ministry. But there's a problem. And I believe that problem is one that may very well speak to us today. I want you to see from even this passage a crisis of leadership. It's there in the text, verse 6, after he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All good, if anyone. Do you see it at the beginning of verse 6? Just stop there. If anyone. It's very nice to have this idea of appointing elders. It's very nice to have this idea of... uh, a plurality of elders, which I believe is the, the New Testament picture and the ideal that churches will have multiple elders. This is not just a New Testament principle, but it is something that goes way back. For example, comes to mind when Moses was counseling the children of Israel as they were en route from slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. His father-in-law, Saw the masses of people queuing up day after day to speak to this one individual. And he pulled his son in law aside and said, What you're doing is not right. He didn't commend him for the good job. He didn't say, Okay, you know, this is well done. This is good that you're tackling this complex situation. Way to go for the responsibility. I'm so proud that that my daughter married you. You know, you're just a strong man, a wise man. All of the people, that such influence and what a platform. Rather, he pulled him aside and said, no, what you're doing is not right. And he challenged him to appoint elders, to identify specific people with the necessary skill set And spiritual qualifications, not least to counsel and advise and guide the people of Israel. Nowhere in Scripture has it been a one man task. Communities have elders. So let's not even think about Scripture. We could talk about just the natural order of things. Around the world, whether or not Scripture has had much impact, communities have elders, do they not? There are people in your families that that you look to. They might not be immediate family members, but there's there's a handful of individuals that you might say, "We, we, we look to that person. Our family looks to them. It might be a person or people. And they they go to that person for wisdom, for advice, for experience. They draw on that. Our communities have elders. Our families have elders. And communities more broadly. So you'll you'll find within, uh, it could be a a, a local street. There will be someone who is a de facto elder. In some communities or estates where you might have more clearly defined ethnic backgrounds and, and commonalities... There will be a handful of people that, that are well-known in that community that when they walk by, people greet them, people know them. Uncles and aunties that they look to and say, this person can give us wisdom and advice. Communities have those, those people that they go to for advice, right? Not only do we have communities having elders, but organizations have overseers or we probably don't call them that now, managers. So when something goes wrong at the shop or at the restaurant, who do you or who do you not, depending on your personality type, ask to speak to? The manager. At the risk of being some sort of stereotype, you ask to speak with the manager. And the manager is the one who ideally can sort the situation out. You've pulled rank. This part, you're, you're the customer. You're not satisfied with the service you're getting. Can I speak with your manager, please? It's always a bit awkward when you ask, can I speak with your manager? And the person looks at you and says, I'm the manager. Afraid you can't be helped in those situations, which are far too common. But we know this Natural order of things requires leadership. Communities have elders. Organizations have managers. The individuals Titus is to help local churches recognize and appoint are some combination of both. They are identified in the text, and we'll look at that in a moment, as God's steward. Look at it in verse 7. An overseer as God's steward. So the concept of, of management the concept of um, maturity and wisdom, all of these things are wrapped up in this person or these people. But Titus may well have been troubled, and many who find themselves in similar places can even be haunted by those two words, if anyone. Because what might pass for an elder in the community... What might pass for a manager in the organization does not necessarily pass for an elder overseer commonly called pastor in the life of the church. Are you particularly interested in the private life of the manager at your local Sainsbury's? Not really. So long as things are ordered and they get their overpriced items sorted out and uh, make the necessary cuts to get things back down in line with where they should be. Profiteering gets resolved, all of that. We, we don't really care. We don't even know their names, these faceless entities, but they're, they're people in management. We're not overly concerned about uh, the details of their lives. And yet, as we will see, we should be very concerned about the lives of such people in the church. When it comes to the elders in the community, sometimes those people are identified as elders for their experience, and their experience is not necessarily godly experiences. The old man who sits in in, in the chair outside the shops on the estate that everyone knows they know him because he has some kind of reputation and it might not necessarily be a good reputation. He's an elder, but he is, an, is he an elder with good character? Is that why he has repute? Not necessarily. But people show respect nonetheless. That person's lived on this estate for, for years, decades, longer than any of us. He's, He was an adult before we were ever born and has a life filled with experience and knowledge. He knows what's what. So, he's an interesting person to talk to and someone that we should be maybe respectful to. There's people in our families. Are their lives always in great order? Are, Are they always entirely sane? Are they not just as likely to send us a very dodgy WhatsApp message as they are to give really good advice. So we, we, we might not care as much in certain areas of our life about certain details, but when it comes to the church of the Lord God, it's very important that we care about who is in leadership and yes, who is not. And Titus would have been put in the situation where he has to identify equip and appoint people for a specific weighty task to lead the fledgling churches of Crete in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. But what do you do in an island where one of their own prophets has said, we are always liars? Think about the trust issues Titus would have had. He's mentoring someone. He's shaping someone. And he thinks it's positive, but then he finds out this person's been living a complete double life. So wait a second. I thought, oh, but they're always liars. Or this person is is professing faith in Christ and it all seemed legit, but then there's this other area where no, maybe he actually completely took us for a ride on even his profession of faith. There were other motives. There were other influences involved in that. What do I do? Who can I trust in a place where prophets of their own say we are always liars? Can I even trust that guy? What about where they are evil beasts? Where the very gods that they, they have worshipped are people who would transform themselves The myth of Zeus, who was born on Crete as a man and became a god through lies, according to their mythology, would transform himself into animal form with a view to ladies getting close to him, as they might do to beautiful animals, and then sexually assaulting them. It's quite grotesque, isn't it? I mean, it's don't think too much about it, please. Don't want to come to church to have that put in your head. What do you do when that's the God they worshipped? And yes, Jesus is completely different. But what kind of person ever goes to that sort of God to start with and finds that Worthy of celebration. Worthy of worship and praise. The, again, back to the trust issues. It goes deeper than just their liars. Lazy gluttons. They'll sit around. They'll, they'll feast. They'll feast and they'll drink to the point of vomiting. Because that's actually the definition of, of, of gluttony. They would have these um, sort of very... All of the combination of things that create would have. They'd have these feasts. Orgy combinations. And they would um, they would drink intentionally to the point of vomiting. And then they would eat and drink more. And then do it again. And it was actually seen as almost sacramental. As uh, a tribute to the gods. It's disgusting. Titus might have said, okay, I know I come from a Gentile background and I understand this world. Uh, this, this, these are my people more or less in some way. But as one who's following Jesus and has been sufficiently long enough to be entrusted with this great task by the Apostle Paul, he's pouring his life into people and he's like wondering are they still doing that behind the scenes? Is that still going on? How do I know that they're actually going to do the job? How do I know that they're actually going to serve, that they're actually going to work as unto the Lord? To see churches planted and strengthened and grown and disciples made and encouraged. How can we prevent these local churches that have been started from becoming fronts for some other activity? A crisis of leadership. And it's real. Paul knows it. He says, if anyone is above reproach. What if you look around and you're If anyone, you look and you wonder, am I the only one? A crisis of leadership. And as we uh, elaborate on this list of things, it, it will become more apparent how challenging it would be even in our context to identify someone who fits the bill. The emphasis is not on some notion of calling, because there are plenty who might say, oh, I feel called. And they're grossly unsuitable. It's not even a matter of capability because there are far too many, and this has created great problems within the churches where their charisma has outdistanced their character. Their capability has has surpassed godly characteristics and we want people who are capable absolutely but sometimes you'll interact with someone and and the red flags are going off left right and center is this a narcissist or is it just I'm not used to finding capable people who are are also godly or are they are, are they lying to me these are, these are things that I felt personally. The calling's important. Don't get me wrong. Capability is is vital. When these things are properly understood, they're necessary. But the emphasis of the Apostle Paul is actually first on character. And if more attention was, was placed on character than professed calling or capability or charisma then perhaps we might have avoided over the years of church history great pain and sorrow i remember some uh, someone was being very hyped on social media at one time within a certain segment of london christians and uh, I had never heard of the person, and everyone was talking about. Oh, they were, you know, apparently dropping truth and all of that. So I, 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 I had a look at what they were saying. I couldn't watch more than a minute. I didn't. Th- the attitude of the person completely rubbed me the wrong way. And don't get me wrong. I like, I like someone who has a bit of fire in their belly. But that's not what was happening. There, there, there was something else that I couldn't actually warn anyone about. Tangibly, because I could I couldn't actually put my finger on it, but there was an instinct that I had that there was something was really off about this guy. I didn't disagree with what he was saying. There was something that I I I would describe it to someone as an arrogance, but they would say, Oh, they're just confident. There was something else going on. And over time I began to hear things people who couldn't be in communication with this person a self-described apostle no less Uh, they could not they could not text they couldn't call if they did they'd generally be ignored there wasn't a sense of pastoral care that was going on and eventually the the, this one of the elders came to me and said that he was thinking about resigning the elders of this man's church. I said, really? What's going on? Well, apostle, and I said, you know, you can just call him by his name because I, I don't really regard him as such. Just, uh, and he kept falling into it. Apostle this, apostle that. I just call him his name. So he's there have been allegations. I said, well, I know what Scripture says about You know, you have to have witnesses for anybody. That's only fair. But an elder, two or three witnesses. Actually, the Scriptures do give that same metric for just about anybody. But these look compelling. I got the idea that uh, that he was engaged in inappropriate communication with members of his congregation. Uh, I I didn't really know what it was. I drew conclusions, and in fact, they were false conclusions. Hoping for the best. And then I find out that this man had a routine of um, sort of flirting sexual communication, increasingly sexual communication, with men in his church who were at the gym and through those experiences, through, through their Instagram or whatever, their documentation of their health journey would um, communicate with them stuff with the guys in the church. Brothers, seriously, yeah, seriously, I can't even fathom writing you guys in that way. But if there were ever a hint women or men of me communicating inappropriately call me out on it and bring it to someone else this elder was saying I'm going to resign because of it. so why are you the one resigning <laughs> you're actually uh, because it's you know his his accountability team they're they're planning on Suspending him for a season and reappointing him after a year. Nonsense. The man is not above reproach. Absolutely not. So not only is he a narcissist, an arrogant, self-absorbed individual, but he's a sex pest. This could have been prevented because some of these characteristics were out before He was even appointed. And this happens again and again and again. And no church, no, not our own, is immune. And we can, we can seek to do things decently and in order, but our elders, our leaders, must continually be held accountable to this standard. So things might have been okay at first, but then when they're not okay... There are processes, as we ourselves have known and experienced, to resolve that redemptively and restoratively, but that does not necessarily mean restoration to ministry publicly. We again and again have to face the crisis of leadership and we can only do so when we are, um, helpfully when we are well acquainted with the character of leaders, That's the second thing I want you to see. We've seen the crisis of leadership. Look at the character of leaders. It's there in the text that we read. The character is wrapped up around, I want you to know, a specific character identity. That of a steward. You've heard about pastors. You've heard about elders. You've heard about overseers. There's the the community a language of elder and there's the corporate language of overseer used of one personality in this text. But there's a word that we often forget, and that is steward. It's a very good word. And it sums up the essence of Christian leadership. We are all called to good stewardship. Being good stewards is a creation command. It's given as early as Adam and Eve... They were commanded to tend and care for the earth, responsibly harnessing and using its resources for the blessing and benefit of all. And this is a far cry from the abuse and exploitation that has been brought by sin. But we go back to how it ought to be and we see stewardship entrusted to humanity. Scripture is filled from that point on with the concept of a steward and stewarding. The responsibility to be good stewards did not change with the fall. Work is not a product or a consequence of the fall. Oh, you understand that. God put the first couple in a garden and told them to tend it. The discomfort, the pain... The, um, uh, the loss, the anxiety, all of these other things that we encounter in our work, those are products of the fall. Stewardship was given before the fall and it continues afterwards. But what is it? What is a steward? So a steward is, um, in biblical times, was not so much a master, but a servant. Think for a moment of the difference between an owner and a boss or a manager. Sometimes they might be the same person, but not always. In fact, not often. The the owner is completely different from from the boss, the manager. When you ask to speak to the manager, is it the owner that comes out and addresses you? The owner is somewhere else. They've delegated responsibility and entrusted tasks to these people through whatever uh, complex scheme they have in their organization. Oftentimes not that different from like a a family tree. And you have the owner maybe at the top, but they they don't handle the day-to-day. They may not have a say very much in the day-to-day running of the organization. That's been delegated. That's been entrusted. And, of course, there's the analysis that comes quarterly and at which they look into how things are run and where things are at financially and so forth. So a steward was the boss or manager in that equation. Now think about us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But He has entrusted its care to humanity. We are stewards. We don't own the earth. The Lord does. We are stewards. We're caretakers. But we mess that up. So to ransom and heal us, forgive and restore us, God the Master of Masters, God the Owner, in fact, was made steward in the Lord Jesus Christ who when failed by our service, came not to be served, but to serve. And when he was done, Jesus would say, what we could not to the heavenly Father, as only a good steward could, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So, Jesus is not only King of kings and Lord of lords, but steward of stewards, the one whom all who are entrusted with stewardship must follow. He has entrusted stewardship of those whom He has called, saved, and gathered to elders or overseers. And often these are called by the catch-all term of pastor. And in the text, we see this stewardship worked out in different ways. Such a person is called to be a steward of the church. Titus illustrates that role. He has been left to put in order what remains on the island of Crete. In this scenario, he is a steward. Paul has left and he's left Titus. Titus has been entrusted with the task of identifying and equipping suitably capable and spiritually called individuals for Christian ministry. This is incarnational ministry. It reflects the Lord Jesus Christ who did not commute to us back and forth ever so often to set things in order, but came to us and was with us. He lived among us. Titus is left to be among the people of Crete and to serve them, to get to know them and to lead them. In that incarnational ministry, he is to identify people from among the Cretans who can lead their churches. The role to which he is appointing them is one of spiritual maturity, leadership, and care. It is facilitative, organizational, collaborative, interactive, working for and with people and supervising their work for the sake of accountability. The elder is not meant to do everything. That was never, that's not, the elders in your life, I hope. The elder was meant to, as Paul says elsewhere, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To, as things have been entrusted to him, to entrust to others. So, stewardship of the church. But furthermore, there's also stewardship of the family. Appoint elders in every town. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. What does that mean? Do you have a footnote in your Bible? I, I do in mine. One of these days they'll actually translate it as, as it says in the footnote. Um, a man of one woman. That's, that's the most clear, most direct meaning. And it fits the context of Crete best. Some people say, well, clearly Paul is talking about he can't be a polygamist. And that's pretty obvious. Uh, The the scriptural uh, model for marriage is one man and one woman for life. But what we have in, in, in this particular context is illegal polygamy. They weren't polygamists. So Paul is not calling out some practice of polygamy in this context. There are other passages we could go to to address polygamy. This really isn't one of them. Polygamy was illegal in the Roman Empire at this time. Some people uh, say, okay, this, this must be about divorce. And uh, while there are certainly some aspects of divorce um, uh, when wrongly done, scriptures do actually, we, we have to admit, as horrible a thing as it is, scriptures do give um, a valid reasons for which one may divorce or be divorced. Um, and that would definitely have been something in a, pre-Christian context that they would have been familiar with and they would have had to reckon with. But divorce wasn't really common on Crete. It wasn't actually much of a part of of that culture. What was common was being a man, being married, and yet being unfaithful. Illicit relationships. Maybe not even that hidden. Hidden this concept that's re-emerging in our own uh, Western environment these days of an open relationship or an open marriage. Maybe not polygamy, but polyamory, where, whereby uh, one may be married, one man and one woman, but they're, they're also simultaneously playing the field, as it were. So Paul is saying, if you're going to appoint an elder... The the role of elder is to be a steward of the church. But before he can be a steward of the church, he needs to be a steward of the home. Is he a faithful man? He's not actually saying that he has to be married. Paul himself was not married. Jesus was not married. There are people throughout Christian history who were elders of churches who were not married and that was never seen as clashing with Scripture. One can see how it helps. As a married man myself, I can see how it helps and how it brings benefits to Christian ministry. And yet, Paul is saying, what is the character of this person? Are they faithful? Are they a one-woman kind of man? The type that when they find their woman, they'll be married and they're committed solely and simply and uniquely to that woman that says something about their wider characteristics of faithfulness integrity loyalty you can't have a pastor who's going around having affairs some people say oh you can't and maybe in your own stories you've had pastors in your life uh, where that has been the story that has been the case And there are far too many that I am aware of that seems that they've escaped discipline. Again, if anyone is above reproach. So, uh, Seward of the family has implications for his his, uh, married life. It also relates to his children. And His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, The the rendering in the footnote is His children are faithful. That likely connects more naturally with what He says about them not being open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is talking about wild, um, uh, undisciplined living the idea of faithfulness here entailing stability they're not crazy kids and uh, we, we don't see anywhere else the expectation imposed that one's children um, will be born again because what control does the father have over that at one level and yet I think we can learn something. Let's stretch ourselves. Let's challenge ourselves about that for a moment. There are times where I do see things have gone badly awry in the life of a pastor's family. where, And you hear the stories of the pastor has prioritized other things so much that his family has been neglected. And the children have... Maybe more or less been raised in a Christian context and yet led ultimately to reject it. There's a problem there. And I don't think we can always look at those situations and say the pastor is a victim of an unbelieving, unregenerate heart in their rebellious child. How do they parent? Again, in the same way he's not saying you have to be married to be an elder. He's not saying you have to have children. Although people learn about the life of a person from whether they have children or not. Paul didn't have children. Jesus only had spiritual children. Paul only had spiritual children. People who had come to uh, discipleship under their ministries. Other people throughout Christian history as well. That's not something that can always be controlled. But what do we learn about the person and their ability to lead? And their ability to lead the church means very little if they cannot love and lead their families. That's what he's getting at. If he can't order his own household, he'll say elsewhere, how can he order the household of faith? It's a very important question. He must be a steward of the family. He he needs to be completely committed to his wife. His children shouldn't be publicly misbehaving in wild, scandalous ways that are a discredit to him and his fathering, and thereby to the church. He should be faithful and trustworthy. Not only that, he should be a steward of himself. He, as God's steward, must, verse 7, be above reproach. Again, that's repeated. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Is it just me or are there faces, names, situations popping off in my head? But always lurking behind those faces and those names of people who could have been or who were and wreaked havoc as a result may still be doing so. There's my face. And the concern that I seek in all of my life to be above reproach. Not arrogant. I hope that I am never too good for someone else to sit with, to talk with, to minister to. I know I never will be objectively. I hope I never think I'm too good. You know the people who think they're too good, that's it's not that they are too good, it's that they think they're too good. That's arrogance. We're all one. We're equal. There's not I might be the one here preaching because I've been entrusted with the task of eldership. Great. But I'm a sheep too. I'm under Jesus as well. We are all priests. There's it's not like I'm a priest and you're you are all priests if you're trusting in Jesus. You, you, you're, you're all prophets, priests, and kings by union with Jesus. And i with you. That's it. I, I've been entrusted with a particular task. So too have you. I get very annoyed when people say the ultimate, the supreme, the pinnacle of Christian ministry or Christian life is the, the pastoral ministry. There are sound guys who say stuff like that. And actually, I I find it offensive as a pastor. Because I want to honor the brothers who are operating the media today. I want to uh, honor the sisters who have led us in song today. I want to honor the brothers who have read publicly the Scriptures today. I'm not better than you. And it disgusts me that anyone would think that. You know, and sometimes i 'm annoyed if someone comes to me when they could have gone to someone else it 's not that i'm too busy or that i uh, you know i 'm just too good again it's rather sometimes people actually put that on their pastors the pastors better so someone else will offer to pray and they'll say oh no no it's okay i 'll talk to pastor as though my prayers will be heard more readily than that of A sweet brother or sister with an attentive ear who wants to pray for them. We need to get rid of these poisonous constructs of leadership that look much more like the CEO models of the world and much less like the Savior shepherding, stewarding model of Jesus Christ. Stewarding Himself, He must... Work on, on his attitude. He shouldn't be arrogant. He shouldn't be quick-tempered. There are times where a pastor rightly will be angry. There are times when a pastor rightly will work out his temper, which we all have. And God made it. And it's often unsanctified in the way we use it. But there are times where it ha- you, you have to have the fire in your, in your belly. You have to to properly give it to someone. And you don't enjoy that. And you shouldn't relish that. But there's a problem when someone has a short fuse. It should be a case of much labor, much conversation, much bearing with, much patience, much bottling, much self control. And when such a temper is exercised, it should be stewarded righteously. Not in a crazy, unhinged way. Drunkards, violent people, greedy people who are in it for the money, they have no place in the Christian ministry. This is not about status. This is not about power. But one can can see, you know, someone's um, addicted to some form of substance, right? There's, there's all sorts of issues that are along with that, including a lack of self-control. Self-control is, a fruit, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So if they are a drunkard, immediately it raises questions about whether they have the fruit of the Spirit, which raises questions about whether they're saved, so a pastor is drinking, or he's using actually a term which is broader than just like, this is someone who, who likes his drink. I believe it applies also to how we approach drug use. I believe when I'm speaking about drug use, it applies also to how we approach various medicines because sometimes in Christian circles we'll talk about we'll talk about alcohol, we'll talk about drugs and stuff, and yet, Maybe it's not as big a deal in, in this context, but in my um, uh, home nation, the USA, there's an opioid epidemic, and the churches are filled with people popping pills, including pastors. So I don't think you you you, you know you should be a pastor with an oxy addiction, or whatever it is. Self-controlled, sober-minded. Clear-headed. Look, there, there are some times where there are things that y- you just have to step aside. People need to know themselves. And so before they even become elders, there are people who need to say, look, I have a residual sin issue that may be disqualifying if it's not addressed. The husband of one wife thing. Oh, I have a porn problem. So I, 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 I might should... We might should put a pause on on um, uh, assessing for eldership or whatever. I I have, you know, I I just I don't have any capacity for leading my my family, and I don't have kids, but I'm worried that I'm not going to lead them well. I don't think I'm going to really be that great at discipling them. Um, Okay, maybe eldership's not for you then. Maybe, maybe, you know what? I know myself. I have a raging temper. I just, just like that. And I'm, I'm. Some people they don't actually know themselves in that way. They think I'm, I'm just. There's some things that need to be sorted out in this church, and I'm ready to get to it. Be very, very afraid of such individuals who think they can show up and change everything. Normally that means coercion. And normally that implies using their temper. It definitely entails some arrogance. Greed. The thirst for for power, for authority, sometimes is more addictive than alcohol and drugs and various prescription medications that one might be addicted to. And people get the same feel the same high from, from authority. From what they get out of being an elder that other people get out of substances. And they might not be going around beating people up. They might not have a violent tendency. But as an elder, something that wasn't previously seen comes out where they're abusing people. They're coercing people. They're manipulating people. They're weaponizing their authority against people. And they become like the shepherds against whom Ezekiel preached in the Old Testament who instead of leading the flocks, feasted on the flocks and exploited them. A list of negatives. And it's very important that we come to terms with those things. But they are also accompanied by positives. They must be hospitable That requires some level of engagement with people. Some level of welcoming people into the life of the elder and the life of the church. Engaging with people in that way. A lover of of good. What is right? What is just? What is pure and acceptable to God? What is decent and kind? Self-controlled. Which relates to All of that list of must-nots. Upright. Holy and disciplined. This is a person of integrity. This is a person who stands tall because they can stand tall. Because they stand on the solid ground of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and they are pursuing Him in their life. Not burdened down by guilt and shame and and, and their, their sins but knowing their sins are forgiven in Jesus, they're washed and they are living a life of worship for Jesus, not as a perfect person because no one is, but as one who, who is walking in a general pattern of godliness that everyone sees. And although they might theologically say no one is good except for God, the community around them says that's a good man. Steward of himself. But finally, there's, he must also be a steward of the Word. Do you see that? He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's interesting that some start where Paul finishes. They actually put right belief before right behavior. The problem is that the assumption is far too often made that if someone is solid or sound as a teacher or they're gifted as a communicator of biblical truths that they are qualified for eldership. And that is simply not the case. Paul is writing to Titus with the assumption that he will be appointing elders from among professing Christians. But what does their life look like? So we'll start there. They've professed right belief already. What does their life look like? And following from that, does it look like Jesus? Well, are they then faithfully communicating the Word of Jesus? Will they hold fast to it? And will they do so even when it's uncomfortable? They can instruct and they can rebuke. Instruction in sound doctrine is is teaching. Rebuking is is for those who contradict, those who divide, those whom he later says are are sowing discord in the church who should be rejected. He has to have a spine. And that spine has has to be anchored in the Word of God. The truth of God. Right belief and right behavior. Neither is optional. Paul elsewhere says, keep a close watch on yourself which relates to your life, your lifestyle, and on the teaching. Unfortunately, in our circles, it has become far too common to look simply for those who keep a close watch on the teaching. And they keep an ever, ever closer watch on the teaching. And it becomes narrower and narrower and more precise and more pedantic while their lives are in disarray. Or while they are completely incapable of leading even if they might be decent enough. So we need to, um, we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine, you need to examine me. And we need to examine those who would be elders or could be elders. Not according to our personal preferences or emotions, but according to the Word of God. Not according to someone's giftings or capabilities, but according to the Word of God. Not according to what we would like or what that person says they would like or what they feel called to, but according to the Word of God. But there's something something here that we all need to grasp, and that is a call to lead. We've seen a crisis of leadership. We've seen the character of leaders, but there is a call to lead. The the crisis today is no less critical. The character of leaders having gone through this list, we realize that, that may really have narrowed the, the pool. So what do we do? We're a church planting church. We've been committed for many years, as Grace Baptist Church Woodgreen, green, though we are not large or wealthy to seeing new churches planted and dying churches revitalized. We have done so with the help that God supplies. Our recent Sunday afternoon series was all about church planting. If you missed out on being there in person, you can revisit those messages on, online, on YouTube or Spotify. and Get caught up. We do not wait till elders are in place to plant a church. I can't recall ever doing that. Sometimes we might have some idea of who might lead the church, but we don't wait till that's in place. We see an open door and we walk through it. Grace Church Enfield Lock is presently gathering under the pastoral care and oversight of Grace Baptist Church Woodgreen and me as as your elder. It needs an elder or elders. They themselves need to have someone from their own midst recognized and appointed, but that person must be qualified, spiritually qualified. Well, we're not talking about academics here. We're not talking about courses that they've done. We're not talking about whether they're a nice guy and whether they can read the Bible and explain it more or less. We need spiritually qualified, according to Scripture, people to lead that work. We ourselves had hoped to add to our previous eldership of two, but since March we've been reduced to one elder, that's me. And in this season I rejoice that some are learning more about every member ministry, bearing other people's burdens, and some have grown to a place where they increasingly carry their own loads in a way that's that's encouraging. But as we grow up and as we go out, As we set apart and as we send out, we need other elders, spiritually qualified and suitably capable men who can join me formally in stewarding what God has entrusted to us. Lest when our child is born or he gets a chance, my father in law come along and pull me aside like Jethro did with Moses and say, What you're doing is not right. All of us need to grow in the character of leaders, all of us, even if you're not even if you're not a leader of the church, we all need to grow in the character. Is there anything wrong about these character traits that you should aspire to? Is it not something that you would want to be said of you? whether whether you will desire to be an overseer or an elder or be appointed to that task or not, we should all grow in these areas. At least some of the functions of leadership. We can't wait, friends, till there are more elders to be a healthy church. We cannot wait till there are more elders to be a holy church. We can't wait till there are more elders to uh, push back against an island that like Crete is characterized by dishonesty, debauchery, and destructive living. We can't wait till there are more elders to show how in Christ we are no longer liars, evil beasts, or lazy gluttons. We can't wait till there are more elders to point to and say to someone, That the Lord our God is honest, faithful, and true. That He saves. And that He saves the worst of sinners. And He trains us for, uh, for godly lives. Self-controlled lives of integrity and godliness. Giving us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We, we, we can't wait till there are more elders to, to point to and say, there's someone who's above reproach. There's someone who loves his wife, someone who disciples his kids, someone who has a good attitude, who's humble, who lives a self-controlled life, a moderate life, who believes the right things and is able to instruct and rebuke others. You can't wait till there are more elders for that to be in place. Why can't that be you? As Paul goes on in Titus, he says older men instruct younger men, older women instruct younger women. You can't wait till there are elders in place. To, obey, to hear and obey the word of the Lord in that. We can't wait till there are more elders to stand up and tell the nations, I was foolish. I was disobedient. I was led astray. I was a slave to various passions and pleasures filled with malice, envy, and hatred. But when the goodness of loving and loving kindness of God, my Savior, appeared, He saved me not because of works I have done, not because of anything I've done that's righteous, but according to His mercy, He washed me. He made and continues to make me new. He gives me the Holy Spirit. He makes me right with God by His undeserved kindness. He calls me His child. He makes me His heir. He promises me eternal life. He compels me to good works. If I'm an elder, it's because He called me and made me an elder. If if I'm not an elder, it's because for some reason He didn't call me and make me an elder. But I will serve the Lord. You can't wait Till we have more elders for that to be in place. For that to be in order. And this this Lord, this God and Savior, this Jesus sounds like a leader. He sounds like the best of leaders. The greatest of leaders. A leader I can follow as a leader. A leader you can follow more than me as a leader. A leader I want to be like. A leader who, as we learn more about Jesus, says to us, convicts us, maybe leadership is not about me. Maybe leadership is not about you. It's all about Him. So let's all of us lead in the areas in which God has assigned us. If He saved us by His grace, let's steward our lives to His glory. And perhaps there are some who will be recognized by others for the unique privilege and task of church leadership, even eldership. Amen.